Well, this morning we have Pastor Justin Galati from West Toronto Baptist Church with us here. Uh, Justin is originally from New York, and he first came to Canada to study at Toronto Baptist Seminary, where he graduated with a bachelor's in theological studies and a master's of divinity. In 2009, Justin was called to pastor at West Toronto Baptist Church. It was a work of revitalization, and he has been faithfully serving in that church over these past 11 years. He is married to his wife, Alicia, and together they have three children, Jacob, Joshua, and Ella. So brother, we are very thankful that you're here with us, so please come preach the word to us. Does this sound okay? Yes, it is. There we go. really exciting to be here. Um, I have thought often about you uh, because um, I have a a number of different connections with people here, but but especially just thinking about how God has brought all of your lives together in this most recent season at Royal York. Um, I have gotten to know Peter over the years and Gracie too. I mean, just what what a wise and warm, loving leader Peter is, and Gracie, a servant-hearted sister, and I know they are going to love and lead you well, but it's been really exciting just to see this with my own eyes and to see many of you who I know, some of you who I don't, and how God has brought your lives together Um, this morning to see um, your kids gathered here to think about Peter and Gracie. I don't know if they've had their baby yet or not. I think you're all asking. They have? Okay. Um, They have, if you don't know. I didn't know until right now, so that's great. Um, so we can praise God for that. Um, I just, I'm just reflecting this morning on God's gracious provision for us as his people and his church. Um, it's such a sweet thing to see and behold as I look out on you guys and see how God has been so good to you. Um, and know he's done the same for, for me, my family, and our church. And just to see this is how God is. He is good to us as his people. So I'm just praising God for that this morning. Um, let's just take a moment and pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the the privilege and the opportunity to um, look into your word together this morning. Uh, Lord, you know uh, the things that you want to do in our lives through it, so um, we call upon you together this morning. We confess, we have already, um, that Lord, we know all together too much of uh, unbelief and struggle uh, to trust you like we want to, to live for you like we should because of the things that we know are true. Uh, Lord, you see our lives, you see our hearts, Um, you know the things that have happened this morning um, and this past week that were um, unbelieving and even ugly, you see our sin. We ask that you would forgive us for those things this morning and God, we pray um, that you would meet with us in such a way that we would believe your promises that we would believe um, with, with, with a real clarity that you were for us and God out of this that you would work in such a way that we would offer up our lives more freely and confidently uh, for our Savior in a way that makes a real difference um, in everyday life and a real difference in your kingdom. So help us to do that, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to preach this morning from the Old Testament book of Judges. Um, I'm going to see if I can lower this a tiny bit. Does this lower or is this just stuck here? 
It's probably okay if I go like that. We'll leave it like that. Oh, yeah. there you go. Okay. Just keep trying and you shall succeed. This will accent how short I am. Um, and from Judges, I want to talk to you specifically about unbelief and God's willingness to meet us in our struggles with unbelief. In a sermon that C.H. Spurgeon preached called The Sin of Unbelief, he calls attention to something important, and maybe that you've already started wondering about this morning, and that is, what do I mean by unbelief? I think Spurgeon's answer is helpful. He says, Unbelief has more phases than the moon and more colors than a chameleon. Common people say of the devil that he is seen sometimes in one shape and sometimes in another. I am sure this is true of Satan's firstborn child, unbelief, where its forms are legion. There's the unbelief of uh, just doubting the truthfulness of God. Does God exist? Uh, did Jesus actually get raised from the dead? There's the unbelief that struggles to believe God's promises that he's made about living a new righteous life. Um, do I really believe that if I follow God's word in this area, it will be better for me and ultimately bring more joy? There's the unbelief um, that wonders if God is willing to help me, that says, I know that God can, but will he for me? <clears throat> Take a moment and ask yourself, um, just as Josh prompted us already, um, where have you been struggling in your life with unbelief? What area have you been struggling in when it comes to unbelief? If nothing comes to mind, ask God right now, Lord, help me. Where have I been struggling? In fact, let's all do that. Just take a moment and say, God, would you help me more clearly to see this morning and where there has been unbelief in my heart? Maybe it's unbelief in struggling with some besetting sin. Uh, or maybe it's that God can help you in your marriage. Or maybe it's believing that God can work in a new way with your unsaved grown children. Or that he can make your life fruitful. Or that he can provide something like work for you. Now, if you've ever been, you know that Yosemite Valley in California is one of the most striking, beautiful places on earth. I've seen it, I think it was in the summer, of 2002. To get to Yosemite Valley, you have to travel through a tunnel that opens up to this awesome view of the entire valley where all the mountains, El Capitan and uh, Half Dome and Cathedral Rock, are all set out before you. And right as you go through this tunnel, um, it opens up on the other side with this big parking lot. And that's where everybody sort of pulls over initially, gets out of their car, and just oohs and ahs at the site in front of them. Now, imagine you drive through that tunnel, but when you emerge, what you see is fog. Now, no awesome view, just thick, gray, soupy fog. That fog is what our unbelief is like. The reality and the beauty and the goodness of God is right before us, in front of us, but blocking that view is the fog of unbelief. And as a result of unbelief, um, we struggle to see what's true of God, and it often leads to uh, being disheartened or apathy or anxiety, and we get stuck there. Uh, we wrestle to move out of that unbelief. Part of the struggle with unbelief is that you need 
faith to move forward out of that unbelief, which means it's tricky when the precise thing that you're struggling with is the absence of faith. What do you do when that's what you need to move forward out of your unbelief? God's word in Judges 6 that we're looking at today gives us two ways. Uh, Two ways to actively help ourselves see through the fog of unbelief that we're going to, by God's grace, try to see and believe today. So what do we do, what can we do to counteract unbelief? How do you deal with unbelief in your heart? Here's the first way. By seeing that God is working in the circumstances of of your life. First of all, You can actively fight unbelief in your heart by seeing that God is working in the circumstances of your life. Let me show you this from the beginning of the section of Judges 6. I'm going to read it for us from verse 1 to verse 10. We're told this, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwelled, but you have disobeyed my voice. How can you see God working in the circumstances of your life? First, in verse 6, through God making life vain. Now to see this, um, in verse 1 through 6, you've got to kind of back up and understand the, the basic story of the book of Judges. So let me briefly summarize. Judges is the story of the darkest days in Israel's, uh, in all of Israel's days. Israel enters into the promised land initially, and they fail to drive out the Canaanites and their moral corruption. And Israel decides instead that they would try to peacefully coexist with these nations, and they can't. Um, They do what's evil in the sight of God by worshiping other gods, and God gives them over to be subjugated by uh, by the neighboring peoples. And then God sends them these judge deliverers, who deliver them from their oppression and bring them back to God, but it doesn't last. 
Every time God raises up a deliverer, the people of Israel turn back to God for a season, but as soon as that deliverer dies, they go right back to their old ways, and they go right back to worshiping other gods. And the thing about Judges is that cycle happens over and over, and things get worse as they do. This chapter is where the account of the judge Gideon begins, and Gideon's life, especially in the section that we're in today, it stretches out for a couple more chapters, but where we're at today highlights something about Gideon. Faith, or really, um, Gideon's unbelief that turns into faith. That's why we're thinking about unbelief and faith today. And at this point in the history of Judges, it's been something like maybe at least a century um, this is the fourth cycle. Israel's already been delivered three times and fallen back into turning away from God three times. And you can read about it in Judges, but unlike the other accounts in Judges, this account really focuses in on Israel's experience and the details of that experience. As things got worse, we're told, and what becomes more obvious is that God is making their life vain. The Midianites and the Amalekites were these nomadic raiders from the east. And what they were doing is they were swooping in and they were stealing Israel's blessings. The, the crops, or the produce of the land, in verse 3 and 4, and the livestock in verse 5, were the very essence of God's blessings that God in the law said that, that, that would mark his people when they were living under his good rule in the land. So the blessings were sort of there, right? Um, the, the, the crops were growing, the livestock was being born, but as soon as the blessings came, the Midianites would swoop in and take those blessings away. Now what should Israel have seen in that? Let me read a section for you from Leviticus 26. God said to Israel, you shall not make idols for yourself or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in the land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. If you walk in my statutes, the land shall yield its increase, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. But if you will not listen to me and will not do these commandments, you shall sow your seed in vain. For your enemies shall eat it, and in spite of this, if you will not listen to me, I will discipline you again. What Israel should have seen is God, really, in their circumstances. God was telling them that it, it wasn't just happening. Um, the blessings were being made vain by God. They could have blamed their misfortunes, uh, misfortunes on bad luck, on poor military leadership, um, whatever, but, but that wasn't the result, that wasn't the ultimate cause of the result of their blessings being taken. It was God that was at work trying to get their attention to bring them back to him. Now, I had us look at Levit Leviticus 26 uh, to see this, this idea of how God would take the very blessings of Israel away in order to discipline them but we could have looked in um, Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in almost the entire book of Hose Hosea, 
Um, in, in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, in many, many places in the Old Testament to see that very thing. And the reason for that is that, that this is the, the basic way in all the Old Testament that God says he would discipline his covenant people. He would take their blessings, the very things that were the, the blessings of them living under his rule in the land, and those very things he would take them away and empty them. That was how he would discipline Israel. I think we're, we're usually very good at applying verse 6 here about being brought very low to our lives. Um, we know the, the principle articulated in Proverbs about how God disciplines us in love. And we know that that's carried over to our lives as followers of Jesus now. We know that from Hebrews chapter 12. Not that every time something's going wrong, of course, that that God is disciplining us. But when we do feel like we're brought very low and it's in a time where we're wondering about our sin, we understand God often works to, to sort of rebuff and bring us back to himself through bringing some kind of sharp trial into our lives to get our attention. But I believe that the general principle of God making life vain applies to us and that God often intends for us to see it not just in the extreme times of being brought very low, but in the more subtle and frequent ways that we experience the absence of blessing where there should be blessing. In other words, what I'm saying is we need to develop eyes to see God not just in the storms of life, but in the subtle disappointments as well especially when it becomes a pattern. So for instance, um, fellowship with Christians is supposed to be edifying and joyful. Work is generally speaking anyway, supposed to give us a sense of satisfaction. Corporate gatherings are supposed to stir our heart. Good things and gifts from God are supposed to be enjoyed by us. Life is not generally supposed to be lived out with a low level of discouragement or anxiety hanging around. When blessings seem vain, and that's the pattern, I think what we want to see is that it's probably not just happening. And it's not even good enough just to connect it to our sin or our cold heart. What we want to see in those circumstances is God, that God's present. He's at work helping us, working for our good by letting those things become empty and vain. What is God trying to say to you in those things? Um, He's probably, like he always is, trying to bring us back to himself But part of what he's trying to say is, I am present, right? I have not left you. I am working in your life through this very thing and making a lot of the ordinary blessings of life seem vain because I am here. We can see God working in the circumstances in our lives first, I think, through him making life vain. And particularly, not just in the big sharp trials, but I also think when there's a pattern and those sort of more common blessings start to feel like they're losing their blessing, we want to see God at work in those things. That's number one. Here's the second. We can also see God in our circumstances in verse 7 through 10 in giving us a needed rebuke rather than a desired rescue. Sometimes God is evident in making life vain. In other times, he's evident in our circumstances by giving us a needed rebuke 
rather than a desired rescue. What do you want when you cry out to God for help? Help! Help! <laughs> help. Yes, exactly. That's what happened in the last three cycles of Judges. Um, they would be oppressed and they would call out to God for help. And you know what God would send? Help. But here, Israel cries out to God in verse 7. And what does he send them in verse 8 through 10? He doesn't send them a savior. He sends them a sermon. He sends them a prophet. He sends them a sermon instead of a savior in the sense of someone to save them from their troubles. When I'm asking for help, I want a savior instead of a sermon, but sometimes what I need more is a sermon instead of a savior in the sense of someone to save me right out of my troubles. Why did God do that to Israel? Because they needed to see that they needed more than just immediate relief. They needed to understand why these things were happening in their lives. Why were they being oppressed? Why did God give them over into the hands of the Midianites so that they would learn to listen to God's voice? We may want to escape our circumstances when what God wants us to do is interpret our circumstances. We may need conviction of sin much more than we need change of circumstances. And as Dale Ralph Davis, one of the commentators on Judges, encourages us, we should not miss the kindness of God in all of this. One of the kindest things God does for us is to bring us under the criticism of his word, to expose the reasons for our helplessness and our misery. Sometimes how we see God working in our circumstances is by him not changing those circumstances. And not always, but often he doesn't remove that struggle or change those circumstances for a reason. And that's often to expose the deeper things going on in our hearts, to expose the idols of our hearts because he wants to move us beyond regret to actually be in repentance. So at times, we need to see God in those circumstances and see that they won't lift and to, and to open up our eyes to actually look into our hearts, to let our hearts and the deeper desires of our hearts be, be put in front of the mirror of God's word so that they can be identified and convicted so that God can then heal those things. We have a harder time seeing God in our unbelief, um, but part of how we can fight that is by seeing God in our circumstances as he makes life vain and as he gives us a sermon instead of a savior, as he gives us a needed rebuke rather than a desired rescue. That's number one. A couple of ways that we see God at work in our circumstances. And we develop an eye for that to fight unbelief. It looks like God's not at work, but he is. Maybe just not in the ways that I would think he would be. Now here's a second way we can deal with unbelief in our hearts. Second way we can deal with unbelief in our hearts is by seeing that God is willing to meet us in the weakness of our faith. It's by seeing that God is willing to meet us in the weakness of our faith. Now, I'm going to read the rest of chapter 6. Uh, let me encourage you, as I read this, just to pay attention to how brutally weak Gideon's faith is 
and how amazingly gracious God continues to be through the whole course of what we're told. That's what you want to be looking for. Let me read it for us. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midians as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then... Show me a sign that it's you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay with you till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an Ephraim flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abysrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the asher that's beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the asher that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but... Because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the astra beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the ashtar beside it. But Joash said to them, to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? 
Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he, that's Gideon, broke down Baal's altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of these came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abysrites were called out to follow him and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him and he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out dew for the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground, on all the ground, there was dew. Let me read you something now from Hebrews 11. Sure. Hebrews eleven thirty two to 34. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Gideon is named in the New Testament as an example of faith. And he's not just named, um, he's named first in the list of judges. Um, and we, you would see, if you continue to read the book of Judges, that in fact he acted in great faith. But if you look at Gideon's life, like it's common to do in sort of like a Sunday school kind of way, and you just simply want to emulate Gideon's faith, you will miss almost everything that God has for us here. A man of faith is not who Gideon was. God comes to him, and he's beating wheat, hiding in the wine press from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and tells him, God is with you, he's made you a mighty warrior, and, and Gideon says, please, and not in a polite way, like, please, Dad, can I help you, in the, in, the incredul- in the incredulous way, like, oh, please, like, you cleaned your room in ten minutes, please. And then the angel of the Lord affirms his word to Gideon, again, there's lots of affirming going on. And then Gideon's answer is, look, everything is wrong with me and my clan. There's no way we can do this. Then God reassures him again. And Gideon asks for God to give him a sign that he's really being favored by God. So he makes this big meal. And then just to sort of express how how very much God accepts his sacrifice, he has him drench it with water, with this broth. And God consumes the whole thing as a sign of just how greatly God accepts the sacrifice. 
And it looks like Gideon's starting to obey um, and, and trust God. He's in awe. He realizes that the angel of the Lord is actually the Lord. And he builds this altar to God. And then he goes and does what God says. And he breaks down the altar of Baal. But, but just after that, at the very end, we're told he kind of did that because he was nervous. He acted right away, but he did it at night because he didn't want anyone to see what he was doing. And then his father wisely says to protect his son, listen, if Baal's a god, let Baal fight his own fights. And, and uh, Gideon gets this name Jeroboam, meaning I'm the one that contend with, uh, can contend with Baal. In other words, Baal can't contend with me. And everybody starts calling him Jeroboam, which would have been a pretty encouraging thing to be called. Like, you're the one that contends with a god. That would have strengthened his faith. And then he comes out to fight against Midian, and he's clothed with the Spirit of God. This is when every other judge in the book of Judges so far is clothed with God's Spirit and goes and delivers Israel from their, their oppressors, but not Gideon. After all that, Gideon's like, Lord, I need, I need another sign. Would you please, like, I'll lay down this fleece and you can make this thing sopping wet and keep the ground dry and do this miracle, and then I'll know. And it's like, man, there's, there's been a lot already. God graciously does it. And then he's, no, Lord, I, I, I need it once more. Can you do the opposite? It's a little harder. And, and we're just, you know, very casually. God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground, there was dew. If you're not careful, you can make the assumption that Gideon was like Mary, like the mother of Jesus. Um, you know, the angel comes to Mary. She's, you're going to be pregnant without knowing a man. Um, by the Holy Spirit, he's going to be the Messiah. And Mary's like, whatever you say, Lord, I, you know, I believe you. Right? Incredible faith. Um, but Gideon's not really like Mary. He's much more like Sarah, like the wife of Abraham in the Old Testament, um, where the angel of the Lord comes to Sarah and says, you're going to have a baby even though you're well beyond childbearing years. And Sarah does what? She's like, oh, right. She laughs in incredulous unbelief. The amazing thing and the teaching point here with Gideon's life is that Gideon starts off as Sarah, but then he becomes Mary. And what comes out of that for us to see is the willingness for God to meet us even when we are floundering in unbelief and faithlessness. We're not supposed to emulate Gideon. It's not, it's not a good thing that he's putting out fleeces and asking for signs. It's a bad thing. What we want to see in that is God's willingness to meet us in our unbelief. Uh, we began... A few a little while ago, thinking about how unbelief is like fog that obscures uh, the beauty and the goodness and the reality of God when it's actually when He's actually right in front of us. I want to leave us this morning thinking about three encouragements or challenges from what we've seen today. Here's number one. I want to challenge or encourage you to believe that God's willingness to heal unbelief extends to you personally. I want to encourage you to believe that God's willingness to heal unbelief extends to you personally, to your own struggle with unbelief. I like to do pull-ups. Um, I have a, a very nice gym quality, um, some of you guys appreciate this, I can see, 
Um, a very nice gym quality bar, um, this big thick black iron metal bar anchored into a wall and it has some very, very coarse grips for your hands at either end of it where you place your, uh, place your hands. And in my good season, um, I can do three sets of 50, no, of course I can't do that. Um, you guys who know, you would, you'd be tempted to worship me if I could do that. Um, I, can, I can do you know, three sets of maybe nine or 10 pull-ups. Um, and, and my hands, right where my fingers meet the palms, get very, very calloused. You can see I haven't been faithful regularly or else you'd see my calluses. But when I have done that for a while, um, it starts off and it's so rough and then eventually, after, after some time of doing it, I can't even feel the coarseness of the bar anymore. There's just layer upon layer of callus there. Most of the time, the unbelief most of us struggle with is some version, I think, of lingering unbelief. I know God can, but nothing's changed for a long time. Save someone through my witness this year when it's been so long. Make progress in this area or see my heart deeply alive to Christ again when it's been like forever. This has been going on for a long time. I just can't see how it would change now. There's just layer upon layer of unbelief. Lots of layers. Calloused heart. Whatever your struggle with unbelief and however long it's lasted, I want to encourage you to look at God's word here with Gideon. Gideon is so flawed. There's so many reasons he should have believed God so many times. And what does God do? He meets Gideon with just what he needs to heal his unbelief at every point, long after, long after, Gideon should have already been healed of his unbelief. Father comes to Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief, what does Jesus do? He helps. Look at Gideon. Look at this part of God's word. Believe God's willingness to heal your unbelief extends to your struggle with unbelief. Say, Lord, if you need to, I feel very small and very unable. I can't see how this could actually change and happen. I just want to throw myself wholly on you, do whatever is in my power to do, but I will trust in your gracious willingness to meet me in unbelief. That's number one. Number two, I'm going to challenge and encourage you to believe that God's willingness to meet you in your unbelief comes with a purpose. This is a small but important point. Don't miss what God's doing here with Gideon. His work in Gideon's life is not merely a personal thing. It has a purpose. It's enabling Gideon to fulfill God's redemptive purposes for his people. God is with Gideon, and Gideon goes out, therefore, to serve God. God's willingness to help our unbelief and to rescue us from our struggles usually is... Um, is, is, is hindered, I think, and, and it doesn't move forward because we don't often pause and look at the deeper issues in our heart. God's often unwilling to heal those things until we're ready to see that he's not just trying to help us for us, even though he's in part doing that. He wants us to see he's not just simply making our lives better, but he wants to use us. Hebrews 11 
God takes every weak person and makes them strong for the same purpose, that they would seek a better city, so that they would seek God and his kingdom first. So ask for faith, but ask for God to give you a desire to use that faith to serve him. And here's number three. I want to encourage you to believe God's willingness doesn't just come with a purpose, but also a promise. What I'm saying is that you need to believe with clarity that because of the new covenant through Christ, God is for you. And what I mean is that you need to believe that with clarity. There is a place, I think, where our hearts as believers often reside. It's hard to define, but let's simply say it's, it's knowing that God is for us, but not knowing it with clarity, not experientially uh, being certain of it, not feeling it. Why does God come to Gideon here? Why does he come to help Israel? It's, it's not because they deserve it. Um, verse 10 is very clear that Israel is doing not much other than disobeying. God comes to help Israel and Gideon for one reason, because he has set his covenant love on them. He made promises to them, and he kept those promises. Judges is so repetitive. There are so many cycles of sin, and the sin gets so dark and so rebellious, and God just keeps rescuing Israel. And like the book of Hebrews tells us, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. God has set his covenant love on you, on me, if we are believers and he will never let that be broken because of Christ. And he wants you to believe that with clarity, so like the writer of Hebrews explains, you can draw near to God with a heart, true heart, in full assurance of faith. You know, like a parent, God is often displeased with us about our sin within his love for us. But God is always for you. Believe that with clarity. What area or areas have you been struggling with unbelief in? See through that fog of unbelief. See that God is at work in your circumstances, maybe by making life vain, maybe by sending you a needed rebuke instead of a desired rescue. Maybe that's what's happening today. And keep thinking about Gideon's life. And most of all, keep thinking on Christ's life to see the truth that God is so willing to meet us in our unbelief and heal it. Ask him, ask him. Let me pray for us and ask for us. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, this part of your word that you have left for us. Thank you for the way that you dealt with Gideon and thank you for leaving it uh, for our encouragement. Um, God, we confess that um, we, we need your grace and your spirit's work to keep Gideon's life in our hearts and minds and to believe 
that you're for us and that you will meet us in our unbelief. And Lord, to want that, not just for our good, but for your kingdom, help us to do that. We ask you to meet us in our unbelief for the sake of your name, for the good of our lives too, Lord, but for the sake of your name. Amen.